Hi, I'm Jane Velez Mitchell, New York Times bestselling author and TV journalist. And this is Unchained TV's Voice America podcast. For the next hour, you will hear the solution to most of the problems that plague our world. And it's a solution mainstream media ignores, even though it only requires us to make one simple change. Want to know what it is and transform your life? Let's get started. Hello and welcome. I am so honored and delighted to have a truly, truly extraordinary guest today, the executive director of Woodstock Sanctuary in upstate New York, Rachel McChrystal. They are doing such extraordinary work, caring for almost 400 animals while um, participating in campaigns and leading campaigns to improve the conditions of animals everywhere, particularly in the United States. Rachel, uh, so honored to have you today. I know you've got so much going on. Uh, Tell us about some of your key campaigns that you're working on right now. Thanks so much for having me, Jane. Yeah, we have a few happening right now. Um, We have one that we started a year and a half ago, which is focused on state and county fairs and documenting and sharing the animal exploitation and the animal use that happens at those fairs. So that is a a nationwide coalition with other sanctuaries and rescue groups to really just highlight what happens there and what people can do in their own individual action. Um, And we have a specific New York component that I'm happy to talk about some more. And then right now, because it is sadly getting into baby bird season, is we are uh, we have a campaign that is trying to ask Tractor Supply, which if you're not from a rural area, is a really huge farm supply store that is all over rural United States. They're, it's a huge corporation. Um, this time of year, they have what is called Chick Days, where they sell uh, chicks, but also ducklings. So if you um, uh, go to Tractor Supply now, what you'll usually see is pens, full of tiny, tiny chicks, a couple days old to a couple weeks old, and ducklings for sale. And why that is so problematic um, is that we we found that, um, that uh, a lot of those birds are bought cheaply by people who don't really have the wherewithal to take care of them properly. And we start getting calls as sanctuaries to take them on and there's not enough homes. So it's, we feel that it's, uh, there's not the education provided and that also people should not be buying these babies trying to use them for entertainment or for cheap eggs. And then when they don't longer want them anymore and they're no longer to provide or they're not able to provide proper medical care, they they try to surrender them to sanctuaries and shelters and there's not enough homes. So we are trying to stop it at the source, which is the point of the, the breeding and the cheap sales to consumers. And here is a petition that is on your website and your website is very simple, woodstocksanctuary.org. This is the petition. What is your goal? It says here, 8,000 signatures by the end of this month. How are you doing on that? Uh, We have about 5,000 to go. So we are pushing it this week. Uh, Once we hit that point, we're going to go and actually talk to Tractor Supply directly. Um, And then what we'd like to do this summer is actually uh, provide resources to to people so that they can advocate for the stopping of the selling in their own backyards through legislation. So it's multifaceted. We're just trying to save as many babies as possible. But if if the people that are watching can go to our website, woodstocksanctuary.org and sign, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, all you just have to put in your email, 
uh, and your zip code, and we will uh, take your signature to the CEO of Tractor Supply and show that there is actually pushback. Because what we discovered, Jane, is that um, so you have these local stores in your rural communities, but they're actually required by the corporate tractor, tractor supply to sell the chicklings and duck, the chicks and the ducklings. So we actually need to have it be straight to the, the CEO um, at the corporate level to ask to ask for these sales to stop on behalf of all the birds that end up homeless um, uh, and needing needing rescue just in a couple months. Okay, so Tom is asking, where's the link? We just showed it. It's super easy. You literally go to woodstocksanctuary.org and you sign that petition. I did it uh, just as I was getting ready for this show. I, I never ask people to do something I'm not doing myself. Takes 10 seconds. You go to woodstocksanctuary.org, it pops right up. It's a pop-up right at the start, and you can sign it. And I urge everybody watching to do that, please. By the way, we invite Tractor Supply on anytime. We would love to dialogue with you and um, discuss this issue. Um, you know, it, it's really about a broader issue, Rachel, which is, are animals commodities or are they sentient beings? And this issue is coming up more and more. We just, Unchained TV just covered a trial where uh, it involved the open rescue of two chickens off a slaughter truck, uh, which uh, the company Foster Farms said was theft. Um, it was prosecuted here in California and the jury acquitted Alexandra Paul and uh, her co-defendant Alicia Santurio uh, because they said they did not steal, they rescued. So. It's sort of in the same genre of what you're talking about is these animals are treated like commodities because they are legally considered property, but they are individuals as well, Rachel. Yes. And I what what we're finding is that as a sanctuary who who rescues animals year round and therefore gets calls about animals that need help year round, we're kind of on the front lines of seeing who who is who really needs rescue. Um, and uh, that's why that's what really calls to us about educating folks about chick chicks and ducklings and specifically about why we shouldn't be buying them. Um, they're not commodities. They're not, uh, there's no way of um, getting cheap eggs while actually providing good medical care. I think a lot of people think that that's going to happen. It's a way that people think that they can sort of get out of food insecurity issues, but you just it's so expensive to properly take care of a of a bird, just like it is to properly take care of a dog or a cat. And these um, these little babies in people's backyards just aren't getting that care. And we're seeing that because we're getting calls to rescue them, you know, when they're a couple months old and sometimes like a year old after uh, after not being cared for properly. So I actually got a two uh, a text message this morning about two ducklings that were bought a week ago from Tractor Supply by someone who then had to leave the country for some reason. And now a friend has the babies. He can't keep them. He's in Bayside, um, Bayside, Queens, New York City, looking for homes for these little ducklings who could live to be 12 years old and need lifelong care and support. And there's just not enough homes for them. So, yeah, I agree. It all comes back it's happening to everywhere. It's happening with dogs and cats and people are breeding. And then there's other people euthanizing, killing. And I mean, it's it's a system wide issue where we have to realize um, bringing more animals into this world while we're struggling to obviously take care of the animals that we have. And not to mention that 80 billion animals are killed every year for food. Um, I'm just talking about mammals. I mean, 
earth animals as opposed to fish. Let's put it that way. Now, we're getting a lot of people who say they signed, just signed. Now I'm having my mother sign, just signed, New Jersey. Okay, we've got a caller. Um, Nilofar in Dallas, Texas, your question or thought for Rachel McQuistle of, of Woodstock Sanctuary. Hi, it's such a great pleasure. Um, first of all, I signed the petition before the program started as well, and hopefully some of our Dallas, Texas team are on, and hopefully they'll sign as well. Um, uh, first of all, um, kudos. It's really difficult to run a sanctuary, especially as big as you are, about 400 residents. And then on top of that, the campaigns that you're running. My question is, um, after you collect the 8,000 petitions and take it to the CEO, which is a first good tactical move, we know how these CEOs operate. What is the well? Let's let's next? not let's not jump to. Um, we don't know how any individual is going to operate in any any given situation. But what is your question, Nilafar? Got it. Got it. Okay. So so um, let me deviate from that. Um, I'm curious. You're so busy. How does your weekly schedule work? And um, do you ever take any time off? And if you do, what's your hobby? Thanks. <laughs> That's such a sweet question. Um, we do have other steps planned for the tractor supply campaign. So uh, uh, stay tuned on that. Um, we'll, anyone who signs a petition, um, we will email you updates because there will be other action items. So that's a great uh, preliminary question. I am very lucky in that um, Woodstock Sanctuary, uh, we have a really, really good team. Um, so we have managed to, it's not easy, but we have managed to build out a team of people that is, you know, on the ground, taking care of animals and uh, doing all the work we're doing. So I, um, I would say the last couple of years is the first time I've been able to kind of take some downtime for myself. And uh, I like kayaking. I live right by the Hudson River. So kayaking, gardening, hanging out with my dogs. Wow. Um, but I have to say, I know you, Rachel, and you um, are working around the clock and doing so much. While we talk about your sanctuary, let's get to your sanctuary for a second. We're going to play just a little bit of video of some of the many animals that are living their best lives at the Woodstock Farm Sanctuary. Tell us how you do it and what you do, because it's not just a place for 380 plus animals to live, which is amazing enough, but you also do tours. You you have events. Tell us. We do. So we sort of have a three-pronged like mission. So we obviously, we do a lot of rescue. We do rescue nationally. Um, so last year alone, we've transported animals from as far away as uh, Virginia, and um, just so we really do transports all around and rescue work and partnerships year round. Um, and then we, uh, the other thing we do is education on site. Um, so we, we host thousands of people. So starting in May through the end of November, we're gonna be having weekly, weekly tour days where you can come on Saturday and take a tour. And that's really, it's not entertainment. It really is designed to educate folks. So most people come to the sanctuary have never been to a sanctuary before. They're not vegan. They don't know much about animal agriculture. And so our job is really to introduce them to some of the wonderful beings that you're seeing on your screen, um, tell their stories, introduce them to all of the pig right there, and, uh, and hopefully open people's hearts a little bit. What we found is that most people have no idea about what happens 
in animal agriculture. Um, and most people have never met these animals that we call farmed animals. So that is a key part of what we're doing is making those connections. And then we're also doing advocacy. We're doing campaigns. We're doing um, daily, daily campaigns. I would say that um, uh, one thing that is really amazing at running a sanctuary is we have a million stories to tell and uh, all we have to do is sort of tell their stories. So we found a lot of success on TikTok, reaching out to folks there who will never come to the sanctuary that, that are learning about our residents and thus learning about animal ag and um, why we should forego all exploitation of animals. And it's really like, it really is a constant, <laughs> constant, just take care, take care of the animals, raise money to take care of the animals, and then also do all this advocacy because we're not gonna rescue our way out of this problem. I agree 100%. Amazing work. We've got more callers coming in. We've got Jose in Arlington, Texas. Your question or thought for Rachel McQuistle, Executive Director of Woodstock Sanctuary in New York. Hi. Hi, Jane. Uh, hi, Rachel. Um, my question was, I just want to know, like, what has it been your greatest challenge that you've, you've faced while running your sanctuary regarding the animals and the people that come there? Good question. I'd like to know. I think it's it's saying no is the the hardest. Um, people I think often assume because uh, we there's a lot of loss in sanctuary life. We lose beings that we've cared for 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 years and years, sometimes over a decade, and it's just part of it's part of what you do. Um, you know, Woodstock Sanctuary has been around for a while, and so we do have a very elderly population, and so it's very common that we lose beloved animals that are you know part of our really part of our family. Um, but I would say that I don't find that the biggest tragedy because, or the hardest thing, because I'm, these are so, there's so few farmed animals that actually get treated with the same love and kindness that you would treat a companion animal with. And so I feel so lucky that we're able to provide end of life care and hospice care and to be able to like make these these decisions holding their well-being at the heart of it. That just doesn't happen to the billions of animals that you're talking about, Jane. It happens to maybe a few thousand. Um, so that is, while it's hard, it's not the hardest. I would say the hardest thing is really saying no. We get literally calls every day and of animals who have, you know, need placement. Um, and there's so few homes that, that can take them. And so uh, I think about, I can still think about animals that we've left behind on rescues where we've gone and we've taken as many as we can. And I know that the ones that we've left probably didn't end up in a good spot um, and probably are still not alive, are not alive still today. And I still can viscerally remember those animals that we've left, we left behind. So I would say that that is by far the hardest thing. I remember somebody saying to me, when you've saved one life, you've saved the world for that one life. Um, we can't save them all. And that is one of the, the struggles that those of us who are in animal advocacy deal with. But just do the next indicated thing, which Woodstock has been doing so well for so long. Lindsay in Los Angeles, your question or thought for Rachel McChrystal, Executive Director of Woodstock Sanctuary. Hi, Jane. Hi, Crystal. My question is, um, if anyone is listening to this, you get the urge to rescue animals. I know there are a lot of people that think about opening a sanctuary. It's their fantasy. And what is your advice? 
for people that might want to try this? What do they need to look out for? Is it viable? What are, you know, talk a little bit about that if you would. Thank you. That's a fantastic question, Lindsay. I would say it is a million times harder than whatever you have in your mind. So most people I would who who end up um, who come to us or go to another sanctuary and ask for advice, we actually end up dissuading them from starting a sanctuary because unless you have that experience, you actually don't know how hard it is. And I mean, physically and emotionally and in every way. Um, so what we encourage people to really to do is to volunteer. So uh, pretty much anywhere in the country, there's a handful of sanctuaries that are fairly close to you. Go get hands-on experience. Learn what it is like to be outside caring for animals in all weather in your region. Um, learn about hands-on animal care. Learn about how hard it is to say no. Really like get that hands-on experience, whether it's with an internship, like we offer interns internships, um, and we've had interns go out and start really good sanctuaries after they've been here. Um, or uh, just really get hands-on animal care experience. That would be the number one thing because it doesn't, it's a disadvantage to those who you want to rescue if you haven't really done the research and also really thought through, is this something that I that I can physically do, that I have a plan for, and that I can I really can commit myself to for the lifespan of these animals who I'm taking in. That again, that can be 10, 15, 20 years. So do you have a 10, 15, or 20 year plan? It's incredibly important. Um, so I would say that would be the number one thing is to really get that hands-on hands-on experience uh, and see if if that still speaks to you or if um, or if you're if that person is just maybe should stay on as a volunteer at another at another sanctuary and just become more involved that way because that's also incredibly incredibly helpful and every sanctuary does really need animal care volunteers they need humane education volunteers some of them need like social media volunteers there's all these ways that you can help existing organizations um i also want to give a huge shout out to two uh two groups one is the micro sanctuary um, resource center for people who want to start small and just by rescuing a couple animals uh just like a couple chickens in your house um maybe uh, if you have, if you're in a rural area and you have a little more space, maybe rescuing a couple sheep or a couple goats, that's a really good place to start. Some like really starting small and not changing your whole life, um, but really saving a few individuals who desperately need help now. Um, and then also the uh, Open Sanctuary Project, which has a very, very realistic uh, how-to guides on how to start a sanctuary, what to think through, what to think through if you're looking at property, and then also kind of one-on-ones on all animal care. So it's a very realistic way of like looking and seeing everything you have to consider if you wanted to start a larger sanctuary. I wanted to ask you about sanctuaries in general. Uh, maybe 30 years ago or less, there were maybe four sanctuaries. <laughs> we had farm sanctuary, you had animal place you guys have been around a very long time like these big established sanctuaries and now there are hundreds of them and i know personally a lot of them are struggling uh we uh did a show called pig little lies which was a reality series first reality series um on unchained tv first reality series ever starring a family of pigs and we got to know some sanctuaries and we've heard that they're, they're struggling. And the reason why they're struggling is uh, climate change to a certain degree. We've had unprecedented rains, for example, here in California, which are flooding the sanctuaries. These are animals who are outdoors, at least most or even all of the time. 
and uh, their their area was flooded. And then you have uh, supply chain disruptions and you have inflation, the rising cost of hay and other foods. And we've heard that a lot of these sanctuaries are in crisis. Additionally, you have a situation where uh, they used to be sort of, oh, unique, like, well, there's only one place to go. That, that it's, it's like now there are a lot of them. So they're kind of competing for people to come. And, um, you know, my, my goal would be to see sanctuaries completely replace zoos, where instead of people taking their kids to a zoo, they take them to sanctuaries. But does that have to um, require the changing of the model of sanctuaries? Do they have to have some kind of unique proposition, each one of them, or uh, to, to bring people in? This is a big question, but I think, you know, sanctuaries are kind of at a crossroads right now. Yeah, I think it's always been difficult. Um, and the, but I, I would say that it's been incredibly difficult the last, I would say, three or four years. I think the combination of climate change, which is impacting all of us. I mean, here in the Hudson Valley, we're getting more and more rain. So we're kind of, and we, we saw droughts last year. So we're having to think through like, what are some sustainability practices like like um, like water storing things that we can do to make sure that we're doing the right thing by the animals here? But I know so many sanctuaries in California and through the, the Pacific um, Northwest that are like literally relocating to get away from fires and floods and drought. Um, so that's that's been a unique challenge. COVID's been a unique challenge um, as many of us, not every sanctuary, but many of us have a model where we have a lot of people come and visit and we had to shut down completely in order to protect our staff and volunteers um, early in the pandemic. And uh, inflation, yeah, we, I mean, we're struggling financially. It's really hard. Um, and I do think that that's another good thing to think about when you're thinking about starting a sanctuary is like, how are you going to pay for this? Because I think people think that there's unlimited amounts of funding there and there's actually really not. So if you're personally not wealthy and you can't afford to kind of pay for everything yourself, it's, it's hard to, to have a plan. Um, I will say that I'm, I'm hopeful in that I do think as awareness grows about, farmed animal rescue, I'm hopeful that it'll be more a little bit in line with how commonplace dog and cat rescue is, is that if we see these animals more and more as companions, the um, uh, sanctuaries will be sort of like, uh, you know, like dog and cat sanctuaries or dog and cat rescues in every community and that we should all support the sanctuaries in our community, whether that's like physically in our community or our digital community. And that, um, you know, uh, really seeing them as a, a shared value, which I don't think we've gotten to anywhere near yet as a society. But that's where I'm hoping we get is that, you know, these are beings that uh, we've bred into existence and we've exploited and that we are um, killing for food and for other uses. And um, when they're able to be rescued, those fewer that are able to be rescued, we do owe it to them as a community to provide for them. And I'm hoping that uh, that goes further and further. But. I would, you know, Lindsay's question was so good because I think oftentimes the like, oh, how do I pay for this question um, isn't really thought through when you think about your sanctuary. And then um, that can that situation can change so quickly. It's incredibly hard to fundraise for this type of work because, Jane, as you know, very few people understand it. 
Um, and very few people, I think the average person kind of knows why dog and cat rescue is important. I think if you've talked to the average person on the street, they would at least agree with that. Even if they didn't personally rescue their dogs or cats, they would kind of understand the reason why. Um, but I think uh, the average person doesn't really understand why you would rescue farmed animals. Um, you know, uh, I think they're so important because I know personally, I've had conversations with people who no matter what I say till I'm blue in the face, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go to a sanctuary and they see the animals and it hits them in an entirely different part of their being. It's in, it's in their heart, not their head. So you can say, hey, we're killing 80 billion animals, raising them in torturous conditions. Pigs, for example, which you're looking at, you're looking at a beautiful pig there, have the emotional and intellectual development of toddler children. What are we doing to them? And yet when they visit a sanctuary and they go, oh, and they fall in love with a pig, that changes everything. So it is super important. It is. And I, I feel the same way. I think that that was Marsha, um, who's one of the loves of my life up on your screen a minute ago. And, <laughs> uh, she's been at the sanctuary since she was four pounds. I went to go pick her up at another sanctuary after she was rescued from a kill pile at an auction house. And a kill pile is where they throw all the animals that they can't sell that day that are just going to be killed at the end of the day. Um, and she was rescued from there and I picked her up and I could put her in my hands. Um, and I think something, uh, and she's actually rescued during pride months. So she's named after Marsha P. Johnson. And so she's, oh. a little, she's a pride piglet, but, um, she has made more vegans than I will ever make because, oh. uh, you just don't realize it's so easy to be so disconnected with how we've been trained to think about these animals who we farm, that you meet a piglet and she, you know, asks you for peanuts and she knows how to sit and she's very charming and you can no longer look at them the same way. We, mm -hmm. Sanctuaries are vegan makers, they absolutely are. So while I'm um, also worried about all the sanctuaries that are uh, really needing help right now and are struggling, um, I also am very heartened that it's becoming such a mainstream idea. And I really hope that uh, the support is there. Is I really like your concept of uh, the idea of maybe micro sanctuaries in every neighborhood. You know, uh, we're fighting to save the Biona wetlands here in Los Angeles, LA's last coastal wetlands, home to 1,700 species, including threatened and endangered species, and they want to bulldoze it. And we're fighting. Um, Unchained TV has been involved in the fight, uh, hosting fundraisers, and uh, there's lawsuits involved. There's also uh, right behind us a lot that has become overgrown, uh, and it's almost become like rewilded. And I always say, my gosh, if I won the lottery, I would I would turn that into a mini wetlands just for the animals in this neighborhood. You know, there's nowhere for them to go. We are destroying the home of all these animals. And by the same token, it would be interesting to have micro sanctuaries uh, in every neighborhood. And, you know, uh, this is so far afield, but uh, there is a whole uh, discussion about autonomous vehicles taking over and eliminating the need for uh, garages within maybe 15 years, 20 years. Um, and if that happened, there would be the equivalent of two small cities opened up in LA alone for open space. So there are possibilities. They may be, it, let's hope we're around in 15, 20 years with climate change, but 
you know, it, it, it seems like it's very hard to see progress in real time. But then sometimes the law of unintended consequences, something happens, boom, uh, and everything changes. We're going to take a short break on Voice America Radio. We're going to stay live on Facebook and on the Unchained TV streaming app. We'll be back in a couple of seconds. Stay right there. Rachel Bristol, Woodstock Sanctuary. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to the Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. Welcome back to Unchained TV on Voice America Radio. I'm Jane Velez Mitchell, and you are now re entering a portal to a transformative way of living. Welcome back, Jane Velez Mitchell. We are with Unchained TV, the free global streaming network for compassion, sustainability, human health, all that good stuff. It's free to download. You can download it right on your phone. Just put in Unchained TV, one word. You can also download it on your TV via your Roku device, your Apple TV device, your Amazon Fire Stick, and you can watch it online at unchainedtv.com. So we are a nonprofit. Our mission is very simple, to get around the mainstream media blackout on these issues and uh, get the information to the people because what's hurting animals is also hurting people. It's also hurting the planet. You know, uh, Rachel McChrystal, uh, the executive director of the Extraordinary extraordinary Woodstock Sanctuary in upstate New York uh, that is open for tours. You can just go to woodstocksanctuary.org and find out all about it. Life-changing and beautiful. And you have, um, I think you have like a little bed and breakfast where people can stay, correct? If they come and they want to uh, just spend the night because it can be a trip for some people from New York. 
Yeah, if you um, want to come and you're, you become a member, we have something called the Gray Barn. It's an on-site inn. So it, uh, it's five, uh, five different bedrooms, uh, in-suite bathrooms, and it is a, become, it's a source of revenue to help keep the sanctuary operating. So you can come and stay and have an amazing vegan breakfast um, and walk around the sanctuary by yourself. And then also your stay supports, supports the mission. It's really, uh, we feel very, very lucky. We are in a, a a beautiful part of the country and it's a yeah I know it's been so it's I love when you visit Jane because I think I don't know I just think it's such a unique it's such a unique sanctuary space and um it's so peaceful it just feels and really it's gorgeous it's the, really the barn they call it a barn but it's absolutely stunning and the entire place is immaculate like it blows my mind um I have a dog and a cat trying to keep up and you have 380 animals and it's spotless and it's just really spectacular I would urge everybody to visit let's talk about your other campaign and your campaign is um vis-a-vis birthing centers now uh I went online and I saw this to watch the Dairy Cow Birthing Center live feed. Click here. The New York State Fair in Syracuse, New York, welcomes the New York Animal Agriculture Coalition year after year to help provide a one-of-a-kind experience for visitors uh, for to a birthing center. The experience not only allows individuals and families to witness the miracle of life, but for farmers and animal agriculture professionals to talk about what they do. Wow. What, what is your plan on, on this issue here? Yeah. So if folks want to see footage, um, we have some, um, if you go to our website, you can click on the learn button and there's a state fair tab um, and you can see information about our bigger state fair coalition. And then also this specifically um, birthing centers happen at many, many state and county fairs across the country. They happen for dairy cows, um, like Holsteins, but also there's some pig birthing centers too. And, uh, we, we went to the one up in Syracuse and got a bunch of footage this last year. But essentially, um, it's dozens of cows that are very, very pregnant. Um, they are often induced to give birth during the 10-day the, the run of the fair. And then they give birth as a, basically a spectacle. So they're giving birth in front of um, like stadium seating of people watching. And uh, as they're watching, um, they take the baby away from the mom. Um, and they'll never be reunited. And it's sponsored, yeah, by this agricultural coalition. And it's um, dairy. It's supposed to pr promote the dairy industry and dairy farms, um, which is a huge industry in New York State. So we are trying to get this shut down. It's completely unnecessary. Um, there's, you know, there's no reason to have this apart from entertainment and um, propaganda for the dairy industry. So we've, uh, we did a petition that's still live. If people go to that link, um, we took it to um, some New York state legislators and we're really trying to figure out a way to basically get this um, taken out of the New York state budget because the New York state fair is partially funded by taxpayers as are a lot of state fairs. And so it's taxpayer money is helping to support um, this sort of thing. And, I one I think it's so interesting, Jane. Even folks that don't really understand anything about dairy and how the things I just said are not out of place in the dairy industry. Babies are taken from their moms. Um, we think that the entire dairy industry is unnecessary and cruel. Um, but uh, when you talk about this specifically, uh, people are really shocked that this is seen as entertainment. And so I'm really hopeful that we can get it banned, which would mean that um, that we could have, uh, you know, dozens of these cows that are not induced 
impregnated and induced to give birth um, as part of the spectacle every year. Oh my gosh. Uh, we invite uh, the New York State Fair and the New York Animal Agriculture Coalition on at any time to discuss this. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah. So New York taxpayers, and I'm, I live in California, but I'm a born and bred New Yorker from Midtown Manhattan. Um, so I paid my taxes to this for many years, undoubtedly. Uh, yeah. Not cool. Not cool in my book. That's my opinion. It's... I mean, ask yourself, how would you like to give birth in front of a large group of people watching you? I've heard from oh, a lot of mothers God. to that very, that very degree that mothers are in, anyone who's gone through childbirth is, is I think, can really imagine themselves in that situation. Um, and it doesn't really matter how much um, uh, we can be told that dairy cows are different or dairy cows don't love their babies. Those of us who have worked at sanctuaries and have seen moms and babies together, no, that's not true. Of course it's not. Every mother cares about their kid. Um, uh, I think I think it's very tangible and uh, and people can really relate to it and are horrified by it. So I'm actually very hopeful. Um, there's many things with state and county fairs that we would like to get stopped, but this feels like this is something that we could do really stop on a very short, in like a very short period of time. And I'm very hopeful about it. We've got another caller, Michelle in Los Angeles, your question or thought. Hi. Um, thank you so much for taking my question. I was thinking, I've been vegan for a while, and I've never been to a sanctuary. Um, I grew up in the city, and I remember going to zoos for field trips. And I was thinking, uh, maybe you have these programs or already where you go into schools and maybe partner with them. And instead of them going to zoos, they go to sanctuaries as field trips. Because if my mind or if I was exposed to it as when I was younger, I think my views now, like I would have gone to a sanctuary sooner. Yeah, I think um, uh, children's programming is super important. We actually have um, family friendly tours uh, as part of our regular kind of our regular programming where they're really targeted at kids under the age of 10. And we found those to be hugely impactful. Um, we had uh, basically uh, one tour a week sold out all last summer focusing on children. And we've also done a lot of school programming as have other sanctuaries. Catskill Animal Sanctuary, that, who is a neighbor of ours, has a really great children's program. Animal Place does children's advocacy in California. Um, Farm Sanctuary has an education program in schools. So I think not only like providing curriculum for teachers, um, which, I mean, you know, teachers are always very happy to get um, help with curriculum and bring in guest speakers, but also doing some field trips and some visits. I, I totally agree. I think the the ability to have um, some of that information presented to you when you're young is really, I think, would be life changing for a lot of kids. Yeah. And, you know, it's just so fun to go to a sanctuary and you tell the story. I've been on your tours, Rachel, where you tell each story as we meet a new animal and each story is absolutely unique. And each individual animal has a personality, just like each individual dog or cat has a personality and each individual human has a personality. Um, so what can people expect when they go to farm sanctuary, uh, to Woodstock farm sanctuary? Yeah. So we, even though we have nearly 400 animals, we say right off the bat that you won't be meeting all of them. Um, one is a matter of time and we have 135 acres and we can't cover that all in a, you know, an hour and a half tour. But we also really try to set the expectation right up front that this is not a petting zoo. 
you're not guaranteed any certain interaction with anybody, and that we also um, only uh, engage with the animals um, that actually really genuinely like to see visitors. And I think that is really important because it people do come thinking, oh, I'm going to like you know, meet a cow and then I'm going to like have this experience with a pig. And we really try to set the expectation that we're, we're entering into their house. This is their space. Um, this is their home. And we uh, let them take the lead. So we'll kind of wait and see which cows come up, um, which pigs really want to belly rub, which goats are really feeling like they want to meet new people. And um, it's, so it's a very uh, animal centered experience. And, um, and that, what that does is that gives you time to actually like get to know an individual. Um, so you can like meet, meet, uh, you know, Maybelle the cow and hear about how she's 20 and how she was rescued from a dairy farm years ago. Um, and how she didn't go, she had so many babies taken from her that, that she didn't come near any of us for years. She just didn't trust us at all. And then now that she trusts us, she's like the sweetest, most gentle senior lady ever. You can hear about her love affair with our late great Kaylee the cow um, and how she's got best friends with Joe. So you really learn about like who they are as individuals, their rescue stories and what that means, how that represents dairy, the dairy industry or other animal ag industries, but also how, how they exist, exist at Sanctuary, which is with friendships and family and likes and dislikes. And part of that is learning that not every animal wants to come up to you and that it's not your right to have an engagement with every animal, but that it is their prerogative and they have some autonomy in the space. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that in itself, I will say is really impactful because uh, like letting everyone know that this is, yeah, this is the pig's home. This is not your home. And uh, what they want is what we, what we do on tours. Um, that really makes a huge difference, but people are transformed. I, it's funny, Jane, I always, uh, I think people come in really expecting to fall in love with goats because goats are so you know they're kind of dog-like um and they're very people oriented and pigs as well because pigs are so cute and i think we all think pigs are cute but people often just fall in love with the turkeys and um so that's one thing that i always find is really magical is like who are the animals that people did not come to the sanctuary looking to meet or looking to learn more about but end up falling completely in love i think the same thing happens with sheep who are so sweet um, and so we'll just put their heads, they get to know you, they'll put their heads on your chest and they'll hoof you just like a dog will paw you from our attention. Um, and they have these, uh, this really amazing, like some, like a uh, collective social structure where they all take care of each other. And so really just learning about like who these beings are and how they exist within this world that is, you know, we're holding for them, um, as transformative and people, I don't know if you haven't been to a sanctuary yet, uh, I really recommend going and falling in love. Wow. Uh, it, it's so powerful and so important. So we have a couple of minutes. I want to um, ask you about the big picture because when you're in a certain perch, you can see things. And it's so funny because I'm listening to a course right now while I walk uh, about Basically, the beginning of the universe and how it started, I think, what, 13 and a half billion years ago or something like that. It, the numbers are very hard to process. But, you know, one of the points that I've gotten from it, it's very hard to see progress in real time. And we might think like nothing is changing, but everything that's happened just in terms of geologic time 
just the existence of human beings is a blink in an eye. Do you see from your vantage point things changing for the better in terms of our relationship as a human species with the animal species? That's a hard question. I think that on the minute scale, no, in that we are consuming more and more animals every year. And the uh, the degradation of natural spaces, as you mentioned, Jane, is happening at a continuously accelerated rate when you think about the global deforestation and it's all connected. But I will say, I think that what what gives me hope is the the rapid acceleration of social movements that can happen in our connected in our connected world and how people are really making connections that are beyond species. I think I think about the um the one health model that is, um, the UN, um, the UN has been promoting lately about like how, uh, it's not just a matter of like helping humans or, um, providing conservation support or like we're helping wildlife. It's about like, how can we do things that really, um, allows the world as a whole humans, animals, wild spaces to, uh, to heal from the harm that um, that some of us humans have caused. And I think uh, that really gives me hope. I think people are starting to look outside their siloed siloed boxes and making connections um, and making connections with other social justice movements and just making connections with a, a deep ecology mind, which is something I think about a lot. Um, like I, I actually love that you're uh, talking about rewilding, which is uh, something that we're doing at the sanctuary quite a bit because we have a lot of wild spaces and we're trying to think about ourselves as like, how do we integrate these domesticated animals who we, we care about and we care for? How do we integrate them in a way that doesn't harm the natural world around them and that we can also take care of the wild spaces? And I think that sort of thinking is, I think, what is really going to get us out of this problem where we have commodified and farmed animals because we have to stop animal farming. That is one of, that is just a, a must. It's unsustainable and it's not ethical. So how do we, how do we get beyond that and what is next? Because there, there was a past before animal farming that we're just talking to talk about a blink of an eye. If human history was a clock, it's only been in the last 10 minutes before midnight that we've been farming animals like seven to 8,000 years. So we can, we can like just move that clock back and figure out a way out of this harm that we've caused. Um, well, I do believe in the law of unintended consequences and I do feel nature is doing for us what we are not doing for ourselves. Uh, my personal theory about it is that we're going to see a convergence of factors. Uh, I don't know about you, and I don't want to speak for you, but I'm all for cell-based meat, bioidentical meat, uh, fungi-based meat, all these um, alternatives that will give people their quote-unquote pound of flesh without uh, hurting animals. And there's you know growing sophistication in those processes. Um, and they're getting approved. The FDA just did an approval. Uh, they've had um, cell-based chicken in Singapore. Uh, I like to say um, clean chicken is, is the phrase. We don't want to feed into the um, uh, bad title uh, <laughs> problem. But um, I see that. And then I see climate change making animal agriculture increasingly unsustainable. I don't know if you saw the terrible, terrible, um, it was a TikTok video of thousands of dead cows this past mm -hmm. summer uh, in Kansas. Somebody just did a rolling shot with their phone 
and it went viral on TikTok, thousands of dead cows that had died from the heat and the drought in Kansas. You're seeing the extreme weather, the tornadoes, uh, and all of this is making animal agriculture very difficult and problematical. So I see those two convergences, uh, along with the plant-based movement, uh, coming together and, uh, you know, the the so-called uh, environmentalists have still not uh, acknowledged the role that animal agriculture plays in climate change. But I think that we're getting to a point where uh, there was a recent article uh, that got some mainstream press that if we don't include animal agriculture, we're not going to be able to hit those goals. It's just not going to happen. The, the, the Paris Climate Change Accords, it has to happen. Um, we have to include the animal agriculture devastation uh, when we consider climate change. So my hope is that all of those factors will come together and will um, hit a critical mass and we'll see a cultural shift because of that. I don't I'd love to get your thoughts on that in our last few seconds. Yeah, we have to absolutely stop farming animals. Um there's no other way. I mean, I think I think we've kind of equivocated a little bit about like, uh, I feel like as a movement, we haven't always been strong enough in saying that. And we've equivocated about like, well, we maybe we could like allow slightly different farming or different like amounts of farming. And we just what has become very clear. And I'm I'm glad that we have more and more research and data and climate science to show it um, is that, uh, you know, we're in this is crunch time and we're in um, we're in uh, basically a you know, a great extinction. And with the lack of biodiversity, animal agriculture is a leading cause, if not the leading cause of it. Um, and that includes the impact on the climate crisis. And that includes the lack of um, the biodiversity loss and lack of wild spaces. It's like, it's, it's, it's ruining our, our, um, our planet. planet. <laughs> <laughs> we can, there's no equivocating. So I would say that like anything that gets us in that direction um, is going to be a positive. And I will, um, uh, it's interesting, Jane, I think that is starting to show up in conservation groups a little bit. I'm seeing Greenpeace for the first time uh, recently start talking about it, um, talking about animal agriculture and naming it as a climate harm. And I think, uh, I think we just, everybody, that's something that everyone can do as an activist is just like continuously saying that. And I, even five years ago, when I said that people would look at me as if I had lost my mind. Um, and when I, when you would say that, that it is a leading cause of the climate crisis. And now I think it's slowly people are getting it. And I think that means we have to shut it down. We don't need it. We need to just stop it. It is, it is unethical and it is wrecking the planet. It really is unethical and wrecking the planet. It was kind of cute because I heard a snore and I know you told me before the show that that's your dog snoring. And I said, it's okay. My dog's doing Cirque du Soleil over here on this side. So uh, those are the joys of having animals in our lives. And uh, I just love what you're doing. Uh, I want to ask you uh, this provocative question as we wrap up. I've had this vision of sanctuaries replacing zoos for a long time. But I, I think that just like zoos use, well, first of all, somebody explained to me the difference between a zoo and a sanctuary is that the sanctuary is designed for animals. The zoo is designed, and one of the reasons they keep them in closed quarters is that if they didn't keep them there, they wouldn't be on display. They'd go off and you wouldn't see them. So the reason why elephants are kept in these 
tiny, tiny spaces where they rock and they're traumatized is that if they open it into a big space, uh, they just walk away. And then the people wouldn't get their money's worth in their minds. But do you have any thoughts on how we might be able to make that transition? I, I, I've been thinking that, you know, sanctuaries could become places where there are uh, increasing community gatherings, um, even concerts. In other words, not something that changes the essential um, makeup of the sanctuary, but that brings people in and then they get to see the animals while they're there in the same way that zoos lure people in. It's like, it seems like sometimes the animal exploiters have all the clever ideas about, about getting people into their tent. Yeah, I think there's a, a variety of philosophies about this, even within the sanctuary community. And I feel like it's very nuanced. Um, uh, I think one thing we have to be very careful of is like not uh, not centering human entertainment, um, because that's also not only do we want to make sure that the animals in our care are prioritized, obviously, but also uh, that is then that's not really telling teaching the lesson that we want to teach to the visitors and to the people that are like coming into a sanctuary that, that they're like, you know, they pay $10 and they're guaranteed that they get to hang out with the goat. It's like, well, maybe if the goat wants to hang out with you. Um, so I would, it's, uh, I think there's that, but I do, I do feel like, um, uh, there's some very interesting things happening on a wildlife sanctuary model of, of how can you like the wildlife sanctuary in Tennessee, for instance, or the elephant sanctuary in Tennessee, it's like, you can go there, but you go there to work and volunteer and that's how you build community. And you're not, so there's no guarantee that you're going to interact with their rescued elephants. In fact, you're told that you're not going to, and you might not even see an elephant, um, but it's building this community of care. And I think that is uh, so neat. And I think that's what sanctuaries of domesticated animals, like farmed animals can really be striving for is like, how do you build these communities of care? How do you like build your volunteers? How do you like, are there spaces in your sanctuary you can have events that is not going to be disruptive to the animals in your care and where you can, you know, do education in a way that, um, that is nuanced and considers that it's nuanced. But, um, yeah, I think, uh, uh, zoos, zoos, Zoos should be all, let's put them, let's abolish them along with animal farming and um, uh, wild animals do not like to be on display. Um, and it is incredibly stressful. Just the act of being watched um, and being on display is harm to a, a wild animal in a way that is not necessarily harm to a domesticated animal. So that in itself, it's like, that is, we, we just can't, we, we've, we've moved beyond that. It's not 1850 anymore, right? Absolutely. Uh, it's time for us to evolve. It's the 21st century. Things are happening. And I just want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're an extremely busy person. Everybody watching, immediately go to woodstocksanctuary.org. There are petitions to sign. There is volunteer work to do. Get involved. Um, this lady's working around the clock. She can't do it alone. She's got an incredible team. You can be part of it. Thank you so much for joining us for Voice America Radio, Unchained TV, and download our streaming network for compassion, climate, and human health. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. 
Meanwhile, have a peaceful week. 